Welcome to the Unorthodox Live Show. We are very passionate people here. We're going to be talking about a lot of things. Dan Savage is here. There may be some obscenities. This is your obscenity warning. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by tablet senior writer, Liel Leibovitz. A very happy month of Adar to everyone who's uh, listening. Adar Rishon. Adar if you're, one. Adar if you're going to be Adar Aleph, baby. Adar two, the revenge coming <laughs> right up. This is the prequel. At tablet... <laughs> Body count way higher, Adar two. At tablet deputy editor, Stephanie Butnick. Hello. Uh, for those of you who didn't quite get that joke, so some years there are two Jewish months of Adar. How, how often is there a leap, Adar? There's like every. Why is everyone looking the at me? The answer is as often as we feel like it. <laughs> we can just make it's more. 2019. It's literally a Dar one. Yeah. It's like a Dar one eight today. We can make more time in Judaism. We can just insert another. But it's a leap year, right? Another yeah. Dar. Yeah. Uh, we are delighted today to welcome listeners of the Savage Lovecast, Dan Savage's podcast. This week, he is our Gentile of the week. We have a Jewish guest every week because we're a bunch of Jews here and we like rolling with other <laughs> Jews. But also we like rolling with Gentiles too. And Dan, who his listeners know, went to Catholic high school. In fact, at one point, thought about being a Catholic priest, but ended up in a different He's line like, of work. He's like, it's either Catholic priest or sex columnist. <laughs> I don't know which I one. I think that's a more common, you know, <laughs> the debate than you would think. He reached The church <laughs> lost that. So this week, he is on our show giving sex advice uh, as part of our Seattle live show. We recorded him in Seattle at the uh, Strom Jewish Community Center on Mercer Island, and we have the tape of that. So for those of you who are here because you're Dan Savage fans, you're going to get a, um, a bucket load of Dan Savage's uh, sex advice. Our Jew of the Week, also Seattle-based, we talked to an extraordinary rabbi named Will Berkowitz. He works with Jewish Family Services in Seattle, and among other things that they do is work with with immigrants and refugees. So very, very timely. Um, Stephanie, what's up with you? So as you know, I'm doing my, you know, like mobster education. <laughs> I watched The Godfather this weekend, and it is amazing. It's a great movie. People are right. They, they really, this really holds up. People were, the whole world was onto something. The whole something. world was onto something. And it's great because I finally, um, I finally understand You've Got Mail, where uh-huh. he's explaining all the Godfather references. Slash three quarters but, yeah. of, of the rest of American popular culture in the last like three decades. Yeah. When I watched Casablanca, and first of all, no one like told me it was a Nazi movie. And I was like, I would have watched this much sooner if I knew the Holocaust was involved. And I was like, oh, this is where that's from. Oh, this is where that's from. This is where that's from. It kind of happened again with The Godfather because you're like, Oh, this is why we say that thing. Yeah. Um, but the greatest thing is like the first scene in The Godfather, he's holding a cat on his lap. And I'm no. like, no one told me this was a cat movie? Like, <laughs> what is going on? People need to like market these things better Thanks so that them. I watch them. This is how to pull in the kids. <laughs> Wait, so you, where are you in, the, in your Soprano watching? I'm on season two. Now, you did Godfather 1. Yeah, Godfather 1. And then... Oh, so you're in so for, the, for the real this, That was Saturday afternoon. And then... With Shabbos, a nap. Shabbos yeah. at the Monday <laughs> With, with a nap in between. It was like in the evening. But um, the next day I was like, you know, I think I actually want to watch one again before I move on because I feel like there's so much that happens that I feel like like a second watching could just be a second viewing could just be like what I need. Mm-hmm. And then we came home and it was on TV. Yeah. So I got the, the, the like, you know, the sanitized version. Now you're going to see it pop up everywhere. What about this juncture of your life has sent you to watch Italian-American uh, mob-related popular well, culture? I wonder if it's on its broadest level, like interest in like ethnic portrayals um, mm-hmm. and just like being so immersed in the Jewish community. It's actually nice to look at a, a different community's uh, cinematic portrayal. You just needed a break from the Jews. I needed a break <laughs> from the Jews. Um, though there's a bunch of Jews in the... Oh, yeah. And I'm, I'm actually curious and I wonder... I Have you met the read, Jew in The Sopranos yet? The old Jewish Hesh, guy? Yeah, Hesh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. And then there's, there's, uh, jo- there's Mo... Green, Mo Green, or, right? So it's like I'm actually. I bet someone's written a book about this. And we should have them on about like Jewish portrayals in 
like Italian, movies. Italian mobster movies. Yeah. Because there's always like the the greed, like they're they're kind of the same but different. Like they're definitely always on the outskirts, mm-hmm. but they're sort of like so in but not of. Like they keep the books. They're yeah. around. Yeah, exactly. So maybe um, I think it's it comes from sort of like an ethnographic what's standpoint. Next my for, interest. What's next for Stephanie's uh, journey into ethnic American portrayals? Angela's Ashes. But, oh, wait, the craziest has some thing Irish is people in it. Diane uh, Keaton is in The Godfather. Yes, like, that is insane to me. <laughs> no one told me. <laughs> the Godfather, as directed by Nancy, Nancy Myers. <laughs> so you know, I have this weird thing when I, I get completely immersed in the stuff that I'm watching and like completely inhabit the world and the characters, which is why I have to be very careful about what I read or watch at any given moment. Mm -hmm. So the last week or so, I decided to revisit Brides had revisited. It's like, you know, this is a great book. Haven't read it in like five years. Gonna jump right back. And? Have you too? No. Have you done so, so, so a week ago, I went to the library and I I ordered on interlibrary loan the definitive biography of Evelyn Waugh. I was huh. just in a, I was in a Waugh mo- moment. You and I both were on a like a, we, we a Waugh the, connection. We're we walking the, the walk. Uh, the horrible misogynist Catholic Catholic uh, dickwad type of vibe going on. Yeah, it's a good vibe to be on. So you've been re- rewatching or rereading? Oh no, just reading. Reading uh, and and uh, yeah, I haven't haven't read in five years. And Stephanie, I don't know if you do the same when you watch. The Godfather, because yes. I would speak like this the whole time. I'm walking around, it's like, toodaloo, cheerio, old chap. You're living in post World War One England. And, and Lisa's like, why are you calling me old chap? I was like, <laughs> oh, so sorry, right now. Um, yes, I have been, I basically have become a gangster yeah. in my demeanor, which I really like. And it's like, no, it, it does you good. But see, I've been ringing for my valet for five hours straight last night. Nobody and can. Your Uber you. driver's like, I'm not going to go up to your apartment. <laughs> Lisa's like, who are you calling to? I was like, my man. I was like, Who's your man? I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, sorry. It was a weird. I think what got me there was um, was I started reading Paul Murray's novel Skippy Dies, which is an mm-hmm. Irish novel from that's about really good. Yeah. yeah, oh, you're mm-hmm. from about eight or ten mm-hmm. years ago about a uh, a boys' boarding school, and that sort of got me into like British Isles and boarding school. So I went back to the source, went back to Brideshead Revisited. When are you reading? Um, During what hours of the day? There are just a lot of people in your life. I sometimes take the bus to work, and that gives me a few minutes. And then you know, people. The thing about my life is. Everyone is goes to bed by nine thirty ish, and I don't go to bed till eleven thirty or twelve. I don't keep Liel like hours. I also I'm feel not like then it's four. like your kids are at school for a long. Like there are blocks of time when you actually are not parenting, but yes. when they when you are, I imagine there's like seventeen people. When I am parenting, I can't even have a thought of my own. Yeah, but when I'm not parenting, I'm I'm good at at, at piping down. You really down. can have it all. Uh, you you can have it. You can have five kids, and and this is what's going on in my life. Thanks for asking. Uh, you know, it's like the host. Nobody can. Nobody thinks he has a life um <laughs> we had our our 12th annual cookies and cider party on uh on sunday <laughs> okay for you for all you're like skiing isn't jewish a cookies and cider party i will say is definitively the least jewish thing i've ever heard that's the most of, goyish of, kind of party of all time so in history it used to be a fall party and then we moved it to martin luther king day because everyone's looking for something to do on the day off and um and then there was the flu this year on that day so we we bumped it but drama but sorry, I can't. but what happens is sid in in october november starts making batches of different kinds of cookies and freezing them and so we end up with with 13 kinds of cookies and then i make a hot mold cider and then we have like neighbors over and stuff and that's we very cookies. connecticut and then we have our, our neighbors miffy buffy yeah and then we yeah. put all our keys in a in a basket <laughs> and send the kids to bed and things get really crunk no um so we have the cookies you get the oatmeal raisin and, and you're going home getting wild we don't make oatmeal raisin my two favorites uh are the coffee cookie dipped in chocolate so half of it has a chocolate shell around a crescent of chocolate so does that get dipped 
months. In- oh yeah, yeah. It's it's a it's a hard shell. And then she makes a brown sugar cookie that is that it's divine. I'm like, how do you have time to read? I'm impressed. Sid is making cookies. Yeah, yeah. Twelve yeah. different kinds. And also, we don't like bake stuff for the school. We're we're bad school parents. Let me let me say that. Like many of our listeners are more attendant to we the. Only, we only bake for our own. <laughs> you come to me at the New Haven Bake Sale. I guess I better start watching. I better get back to the gun. Leave the gun. Take the kugel. Hey, speaking of loathsome characters from history, uh, in News of the Jews, here's a real one. Let me guess. Oh, who might it be on a Jewish podcast? Uh, I'm thinking small mustache, <laughs> tiny penis. It's Hitler. Adolf Hitler. Dun, dun, dun. Um, Weidler Auction House in Nuremberg, of all places, uh, <laughs> <laughs> decided working its town's best uh, tourism uh, tourist trap uh, uh, motif. They were that they were going to sell some paintings allegedly by Hitler. Uh, they didn't sell. Instead, they got carted off by authorities who heard that they were perhaps uh, forgeries. I think. What did go on the auction block, though, um, was a wicker chair with a swastika on its arm that was allegedly owned by Hitler. I have to say, like, who is making forgeries and is like, you know what I think we could sell is paintings by Hitler. I am going to make this conversation even more troubling by noting that the alleged forged uh, paintings were nudes allegedly of his underage cousin or niece what? or something Ooh. like that. So yeah. someone is sitting out there, you know what's hot? I'm going to pretend to be Hitler painting his naked niece who's 12. <laughs> oh, God. Someone needs a lot oh. of help is what I'm the saying. The funniest part is that none of these paintings sold. According to the Jerusalem Post, Dutch police arrested five soccer supporters uh, for singing what they say is an increasingly popular chant, which is worrisome, about burning Jews. This was at a soccer match. The chant goes something like this, and I'm not sure if it was in English, which of course all the Dutch speak, or if it's just, if we, the Jerusalem Post just gave us an extraordinarily um, alliterative, uh, alliterative. alliterative and metrically yeah. sound translation. My father was in the commandos, my mother was in the SS. Together they burned Jews because Jews burned the best. Um, so this was in a match. <laughs> it's just like a great theme song to a really fucked up TV show from the 70s. <laughs> so so the suspects were fined $570 each. Again, I assume in, in Dutch geflugenflugens. Um, and they were they were fans of the Feyenoord. <laughs> three wooden clogs. <laughs> <laughs> they were fans of the Feyenoord team of Rotterdam who were competing against Amsterdam's Ajax, which is one of these European football clubs that is coded as historically... Jewish. Okay, so that's why they were doing yes. it. Right. Because even though there may be no I, I Jews on this I team. like nickname is like the, the Jews. The Jews. That's, it's not Ajax? It is not in, indeed Ajax. Uh, and this is one of those great mysteries where certain football teams in Europe are seen as like the Jewish teams. And then their opponents taunt them by hurling anti-Semitic cheers, even though there's no Jews on no the Jews team. Playing on the team, rooting for the team, even owning the team. Most and importantly, owning the, the team. Right. For Right. Like there was years. a Jewish so manager the of the team 40 years ago. And I don't like this. <laughs> this makes me. You do not like chance of Jews burn best. This, Tell us more about this. This is not what I'm into. I don't. I don't. This is not sparks joy so is what you're saying. Specific. This, right. This chant is so specific. Commandos as as burning Jews. And you're like, ew. ew. Like, and that means that. The ever I know like soccer hooligans in Europe are their own thing and they're like their own horrible category. They play of by their own rules, right? But to me, I'm just like that makes me sad. Yeah, right. It's not like you fucking Jews yeah, with the money. Yeah, like give it's me some like, of that Jewish money, like rap lyrics. That's we'll talk about. <laughs> that's separate. That's different. Right. This is like 
you burn best in ovens, right? And also from the freaking Dutch, man. Like the Dutch are supposed to be like, ooh, they're the perfect, wonderful, utopian people with all their childcare and geflugen, and flugen. wooden toys. And wooden toys. And now, and the, you know, we're not hearing these these chants at Pittsburgh Steelers games. We're not hearing them at Boston Celtics games, but in Rotterdam, you know. You know, this is a terrible news story. And frankly, I find it <laughs> very offensive. Um you know, I, I have to say, because you know me, I always try to look at the best in everything. Oh, yeah. I kind of think it's, it's there's something redeeming to it. Because here's why. Like, imagine you're a hooligan. Like, what is <laughs> what is your repertoire up until that point? It's like, your mother is a whore. Like, they're like really based, right. like stupid shit. Someone did some learning. Someone went on Wikipedia and be like, okay, Jews, Jews, what do we got? What do we got? SS, good. Write what that down. With commandos. Right. <laughs> ovens, ovens, that's good. Yes. What happened in the ovens? Right. Someone actually, now let's write a poem. Someone got a Holocaust education. Like between that and like, hey, Jews, Hitler never happened. Right. Like I actually kind of like and this better. And also for all the people who are like, there were no crematoria. Like right. this actually that's maybe right. helps. At least right. they're not Holocaust deniers. Yes, they that's are right. definitely not Holocaust They are acknowledging. Dear Mr. Ahmadinejad, you know who believes the ovens existed? <laughs> Dutch soccer hooligans. <laughs> Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Rabbi Will Berkovitz is the CEO of Jewish Family Service Seattle, a 121-year-old service agency that helps with everything from refugee resettlement to emergency services, aiding the most vulnerable in the Seattle community. Welcome, Rabbi Will. May I call you Rabbi Will? Thank you for having me. Will, Rabbi, Will. Rav. Will Bill. is fine. Burke. Oh, you can go with Will. Will. Yeah. I actually have a bone to pick. This wasn't in the script. Oh, I'm just okay. going to go rogue go. here. Yeah. Whatever happened to Billy's? Well, I was there a Billy. There are no Billy's anymore. Huh? Little kids, if they're named William, they're always Will. Like, where, what happened to the diminutives? Well, so listen, I was a Billy for many, many years. And when, in fact, um, whenever I'm in my hometown, I end up back yeah. as, as Billy. Yeah. So you, you could call me Rabbi Billy. So, but did you, you at some point make the change? Or like, I, it's not I, dignified. I will acknowledge that I made the change. It was post-college. I moved to Seattle. Yeah. And I, I decided to, to shed, shed Billy. Yeah, well. So tell us a little bit about Jewish Family Service and what you do and how you got involved. Oh, my God. Um, so I feel like in the moment that we're living in, I've got the best job in the world because I'm actually fighting the good fight. And in a lot of ways, you know, as a rabbi, people say, well, why don't you have a congregation or do you have a congregation? And I feel like the work that I do is really um, helping elevate the voices of people who oftentimes don't get to speak and certainly don't get to end up in some of the rooms that I end up in and probably wouldn't want to. But it's really nice to be able to um, bring people to to see experiences, to like bring people to the airport when we're resettling refugees or 
talk about domestic violence with people who um, don't think that it matters. I am fairly obsessed with rabbinic journeys. I think it's such an interesting job to have. What did you, how old were you when you thought, I want to be a rabbi? And then when you were in year three of rabbinic school, what did you think your life would look like? Wow. Okay. So. Do you want to lie down for this section? (laughs) (laughs) I usually do this on a Monday afternoon. Um, So what I'd say is, um, I was writing a story, I was a journalist in my other life. I went to a Catholic college. I was the only Jewish person there. And I would not be here if it weren't for a bunch of Catholic priests. In fact, um, Dan Savage would say the same about his life, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> he went to Catholic school. You'll hear, we'll talk. He it went might, to be, might be for different reasons. He went to Catholic high school seminary. Anyway. Yeah, oh, I didn't know that. Yes, he did. Um, so, uh, Both what, of our guests tonight, product of Catholic education. Yeah. So what was really interesting is, um, that in rabbinic school, somebody said to me, you know, most rabbis, when they look over their conservative rabbis, when they look over their shoulders, they see an orthodox rabbi. You're the only one that looks over their shoulder and sees a Catholic priest. And so what was really interesting, and I think this is how I ended up in this role, was looking at the intersection of social justice and spirituality and trying to see like, well, what would that look like? And my friends were, were really into this. And so I ended up getting into it as well. So it was, it, was, it was seeing Catholic social justice teaching at work that made you think I'll be a rabbi. Well, so I ended up as a journalist for a bunch of years and I was in Guatemala and I wrote a story, I was writing a story and I, um, I wrote in my journal one night, I think I'd like to be a rabbi if it weren't for God and it weren't for the religion. And, um, <laughs> and I came back to Seattle as an- And God listened <laughs> that night. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, well, I actually decided to make that really in rabbinic school, that was, the thing I was interested in is like, why does this matter? That's not what I thought you were gonna say. What did you think I was gonna say? I didn't think it was gonna involve Catholic college. You didn't think you'd be a pulpit rabbi then? Never thought I was that. never really interested. So the rabbi that was really important to me was a guy named Dan Bridge. And when I wa- came back from that trip in Guatemala, I know, isn't he awesome? Um, when I came back from that, that, that um, trip in Guatemala, I went to, you know, my mom said, oh, you should, you, know, you should go talk to a rabbi, the Hillel rabbi. And the thing that's really funny is her vision of the Hillel rabbi, my mom would, have, would be in her 90s now, was definitely not this guy with a tie-dyed shirt wearing Birkenstocks. And so... I kind of came with all of my questions and criticisms of Judaism and who's probably the only person I could have talked to at that moment in my early 20s who would have been, uh, who would have convinced me not to move back to Guatemala and go write and volunteer. Amazing. So it sounds like there's a, a group of specific people who like pointed you on this path and now I imagine you are the person in the right place to help other people now. Uh, one way or the other, I think that's probably true. I think I drive some people away. Um, I mean, what's interesting is we're living in this time where taking a stand for things like refugees, which is not a political thing. We've been doing this for, like you said, 126 years. But um, it's not political, but it's become politicized. The entire landscape has changed. So things that just were like, this is what we do. This is our history. We are a refugee people. If anything, if any group of people should understand what the plight of refugees means and why it matters when the doors are slammed in your face, you would think the Jews in America would be standing up. But there are actually quite a few of us who um, leave me really salty voicemails. And like what how are the, what dare are you help other people? Yeah, what do the voicemails say? Well... You know, it tends to go down a road a bit like this, um, and I think it has something to do with 
Uh, you, you have to keep in mind, a lot of folks in this country who are, uh, who are older, you know, they remember when they couldn't get jobs because they were Jewish, they couldn't get promotions, they couldn't move into, you know, they couldn't move into neighborhoods. I mean, that's not, there are still people in our lifetime who are living that experience. And for some of those folks, they're not such a fan of helping anyone other than the Jews, right? And so then there's another group which would say, look, these are folks, and I've, I have these conversations quite regularly, um, you know, they come from anti-Semitic countries where you've got state-sponsored anti-Semitism. They, you know, vow for the destruction of Israel. So why would you possibly want to bring them into this country? I mean, if you saw the New York Times today, there was an article that talked about this. I mean, this is not like, this is not some sort of marginalized story that's happening somewhere, you know, in the far right hinterlands. This is like a mainstream thing. And do you feel the spirit? Do you feel like you were sold kind of a fake bill of goods? Like here you were going to rabbinic school thinking I'm going to do something that feels so pure and good. And instead you end up in kind of like the heart of a political storm getting hateful voicemails. Well, so to me, I think the thing that I think I was so freaking ignorant when it came to, um, I edited, because um, my kids might listen to this. Um, so um, I forgot you gave the warning, so I actually, um, so no, I think that I was so ignorant when I went to rabbinic school in terms of what we'd actually be talking about that the bill of goods that I got sold was like, whoa, this is not at all. That was the hardest thing I have ever done in my life. I mean, that was, if you can suffer through rabbinic school where you're speaking another language that you don't necessarily speak with no punctuation that's like reading court reporting stenographs and then try to make sense of it if you can survive that i think anything you right. you can survive so <laughs> at least i'm not studying talmud i'm here talking to people it's fine. exactly i mean so to me yeah. it's like you know a friend of mine one of my friends who's a priest said um because i was like i every day i was like why am i doing this what am i doing what am i doing and he said you know i hated the seminary but i love being a priest and so i kind of took that to heart and so for me what happened was i said okay if i can just suffer for five years i can sort of figure out what i want to do and um and I actually think what it would it give you no, know we as, should use that as like a, a promo for your uh, rabbinic school they would love it I had a great rabbinic school the people were fantastic it was awesome I I, I'm, I don't want to throw them under a bus um, but what I think is really interesting is that you know that that sense of ignorance is it's really valuable to know what you don't know and I think for me as a journalist one of the the key pieces I studied something called literary journalism was none of this is made up so you can't just you know make shit up and say okay this is this is my truth and I believe this therefore it, it always was, and in rabbinic school what it gave me the grounding to actually base anything that I was going to do in something. So if somebody says you shouldn't settle resettle refugees or you shouldn't do this or that or that, I can say well let's let's look at what the tradition has to say and I'm not coming from a place of ignorance or speaking in the what uh, again oftentimes happens is this oh it's this Jewish values thing like. Well, you know, actually, I can like, give you more than just the quote-unquote... You can give us chapter and verse on, like, what the values, where it exactly, comes from. It's exactly. not just yeah. the Democratic Party on Saturday morning. That's exactly right. right. Yeah. Right. So tell us a little... How long have you lived in Seattle? Um, well, I was here in the early two... Th you know, it was one... You're wearing a Nirvana shirt. So I got here, or... Actually, I'm not sure what's on that it's shirt. It's Hanson in a Nirvana shirt. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I, I was misinformed. That is so. That is so depressing. So depressing. His shirt goes very deep. There's a lot yeah. of layers deep. Yeah, I, I don't want to talk to you about that. Hanson and Nirvana. No. So it was. I arrived here. I was on my way to Alaska to fight fires and work on fishing boats. The sort of write about it thing. And um, I just arrived here, and it was the early '90s, I guess. And um, it was one of those. I don't know if you've been in Seattle on a perfect 
spring or summer day where it is the mountain is out and it's just you. Why would you ever leave? And, I'm from, and again, I'm from Minneapolis, where it was, by the way, as my brother was emailing me basically every day last week. It is now minus 26. Uh, it's now minus 26. My brother lives in St. Yes, Paul. So you know exactly what it's like. I got the screen grabs, negative exactly, 30. That's, what negative, I got. Yes, that's exactly yeah. what I got. So you've been a Seattle a long time, right? Yeah, uh, off and on, yeah. Now, so off and on. So you tell us, like, and this is in some ways the most important question we could ask you. I mean, refugees, important, Judaism, God, yeah. What is Seattle Jewelry? How do you like, who are these people? How are they different from LA Jewelry? How are they different from New York Jewelry? I want or, you to- Or those jerks in Portland. Yeah. Like, Love you, Portland. How can you essentialize Seattle Jewelry? What's the community like? So I used to live in Eugene, so I can't diss on, on Oregon. Um, so what I'd say is, um, I'm sorry. Um, what, what I'd say is that I think, um, you know, they, Washington State is apparently the least church state in the country. So Seattle is the least church city and the least church state in the country. So Judy, and that's actually really, it's complicated, right? What does that mean? It means that we, there is, and I, and Paul, you're awesome, and I see Aaron, you're awesome, and the rabbis are great here, and the synagogues are great, and you should join them. The JCC is fantastic here, (laughs) um, as you know, because you're here. A lot of people are not connected to any institutional Place in People have the lowest rates of affiliation. Exactly, that's what it means. Right. Exactly. Right. So that means they look for what Judaism looked like. And you know, again, you have what is it? Sixty-two percent of the non-Orthodox community in this country is in a blended family. So Seattle is just that on steroids. Interesting, but that obviously opens up opportunities as well. Right? Well, I think you know. So again, I think this is absolutely what the JF, JCC is doing. It's absolutely what we're doing at JFS is like recognizing that how people engage in. They're looking for community, I think, more so than than ever. We're at a moment where we see that. It's certainly after something like what happened in Pittsburgh. I mean, we organized very quickly with whole the whole community gathered, and we had you know four thousand people showed up to to sort of stand in solidarity. And I think that wasn't, for, frankly, I don't think that was just about the Jewish community and the tragedy in Pittsburgh. I think that was just people wanting to do something to respond to everything that's happening in our country right now. But it was a way in which people could gather even if you were not part of a congregation. So final question, if people are interested in, in Jewish family service, like how can they plug in? Where can, what website can they go to? Like what's, if people hear this and say, yeah, I would like some community with Rabbi Billy, what would they, <laughs> how would they, what, what's the best? Well, jfsseattle.org, you can volunteer. You just email me, will at jfsseattle.org. I'm happy to grab a cup of coffee. I do a lot of drinking of coffee. And, you know, um, just be a part of the community. And doesn't and we don't just for the record, we don't care what you believe, we don't care who you love, we don't care what your gender is, we don't none of it matters. You're just you just come as you are to quote your Hansen. friend. To go to Hansen. Hansen. Yeah. <laughs> Rabbi Billy Bergmitz, thank you for being our Jew of the Week. Thank you. J. Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. 
You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Stuck in a relationship quandary Or if you're looking for sexual Gentile tonight is Dan Savage. He is the editorial director of The Stranger newspaper here in Seattle. Yeah. <laughs> Author of the Savage Love Advice column. Host of the Savage Lovecast podcast. And author of the essay collection American Savage. Yeah. Welcome, Gentile of the Week. Thank you for having me. <laughs> All right, so we took this opportunity. We have a lot of questions for you here tonight. Okay. Before we get to the advice portion of this show, you and I, a number of years ago, spent some time together in the, in the journalistic trenches when gay marriage was still a question as to whether it was going to happen. Yeah. Um, and then it happened. It did. <laughs> Do you, um, how are you feeling about that whole battle now? Because for a long time, you wrote a lot about it. You polemicized. You talked a lot about it. Did you have, a, did you have like an exhalation afterwards where you thought, well, shoot, I'm not going to be political for a while. I'm going to work on my art. Or like, My where- exhalation actually involved a, a Jew and a terrible one, Ben Shapiro, um, <laughs> where it was shortly after the Obergefell decision, which uh, brought uh, marriage equality to all 50 states. And I don't remember what Ben Shapiro was mad at me about. He's always mad at me about something. He always suspects I'm off somewhere sucking a dick and he doesn't approve. And <laughs> uh, getting to the obscenity part that you yeah. were worried about. Yeah. Um, and he challenged me to do a debate. I was just like, you do know a duel as it do were? A duel. Do and a duel. I was just like, I don't fucking have to talk to you right now. Like, <laughs> I've been having to argue with you duplicitous, bullshitting, double standard enforcing opponents of marriage equality for 15 years. And right now I'm going to take a break. I don't have to even acknowledge your challenge to come on your radio show and (laughs) debate whether I can do what I've already done. So go fuck yourself, Ben Shapiro. And that was my exhalation. But we can't, you know, this is America. Like, we have the Voting Rights Act, and then suddenly we don't. And voting rights and access to the ballot is under assault all over the country. We have uh, Roe v. Wade, and we have abortion rights, and it's under assault all over the country for decades. Anything we win is just the, the forces of reaction and conservatism try to pull it back from us. So we can't just say, oh, we've won marriage, and we're going to walk away. There's a little bit there where we're like, oh, I don't have to talk to Ben Shapiro for five fucking minutes. Um, or Brian... 
should I say his name? Yeah, I, mean, I can't even remember his name. His name, name. Was, I believe it's Brian Brown. Brian Brown. Brian right. Brown. Brian right. Brown. Which I have to think about like Brian... not even a real name. It sounds like a sort of a stage name. It for... sounds like a euphemism for a horrible gay sex act, actually. <laughs> right up there with, like, we were Santoruming, and then there's Brian Brown everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> or I was Brian Browning him, and then there was Santorum everywhere. <laughs> We're going to have to arrest you for Brian Browning south of the Mason Dixon line. Dan. We're going to have to re-engage with these people because we've won it temporarily. There's at least four votes on the Supreme Court to repeal Obergefell. Mm -hmm. It could happen uh, in the next few years. Donald Trump arguably could get two more appointments to the Supreme Court uh, in the next two years in this term. Poo poo poo. And. Yeah, and that could be the end of Obergefell, which would return marriage equality to the states, and then we would have to re-debate the Defense of Marriage Act, thank you, Bill Clinton, and its provisions that could come back into force. Nothing is ever done in America. Nothing is ever settled in America, because Canada got the French, and Australia got the convicts, and we got the Puritans. See, it's... <laughs> It's so funny to me to hear you say that. I, I think I told you the story when you were kind enough to come on our, on our show some years ago. I, I moved here uh, in 1999, and uh, I, had, I had zero cash, and my, literally my one single source of entertainment was to wait until midnight at, on Wednesdays and pick up The Village Voice for the sole purpose of reading you. Uh, and it, it made me just so happy because I, I felt a little bit like Borat, right? Like I'm reading this thing. I was like, America is country where everyone has sexy time. It's like <laughs> really gave me this incredible view of like what America was like just by reading your kind of opinion. So how, I guess the question is, how optimistic are you these days? Are you, are you just exhausted? Are you kind of elated because of the victories and the, and the, what, what is your day-to-day -day, like emotional? I'm Catholic. Chaos? Everything's falling apart always. Okay. <laughs> um, I have a bad case. It's exhausting for my family of what we call worst-case scenario disorder, um, which I inherited from my mother, uh, which is always anticipating the worst possible outcome for any circumstance, any given circumstance. And the only way to prevent that terrible thing from happening is to talk about it as if it's imminent. <laughs> like you get on an airplane and you say, it could crash. It could crash. We could right. all die. Right. This could be the end. And so yeah, am I optimistic? No, I'm never optimistic, but my pessimism holds up the sky. Are you sure? Prevents the bad things from happening. Are you sure you're not Jewish? That's right. <laughs> I grew up in Rogers Park. We were very Jew adjacent in Rogers very Park in Chicago. It's like it was osmosis, Irish, yeah. Irish on uh, north of Ridge and uh, east of, sorry, east of Ridge and uh, Jewish west of Ridge Avenue. It was very... Uh, very Irishy, Jewy neighborhood. <laughs> there were some. I could tell you stories of the old Jewish ladies in our neighborhood growing up. Remember the whole the debate about the Nazis marching in Illinois and Skokie? Skokie? Yeah, absolutely. Skokie's right next to Rogers Park. That's where yeah. I grew up. Um, and I remember. I have memories of being with my mother at uh, Boffer's Bakery, Boker's Bakery, I can't remember Becker's Bakery in our neighborhood, and seeing women with tattoos on their arms and asking my mother in a very loud voice at age five why those women had wow. numbers on their arms. And there was an expression uh, that got kicked around that bakery by our house uh, that I overheard once and asked my mother about that I, for years, thought was common, but apparently was a very regional, local to these Skokie Jewish ladies in Chicago, where they would be very dismissive of what they called smokestack Jews. Mm. Good enough for Hitler, not good enough for them, not good enough for their sons to marry, 
And they literally use this expression, smokestack like Jew. Part that is dark. The Jewish community. That is the darkest shit I've ever heard. I ran home to my mother and I was like, Mom, around. Mom, wow. the lady, what's a smokestack Jew? What's a smokestack <laughs> Jew? And my mother went and found out and told me. And I've brought this up with Jews generally. We've uh, never heard of this. Apparently no. it's just this, these four ladies exactly. in the bakery in Chicago oh who would God. say this. That is horrible. That yeah. is horrible. You know what? I was going to say we'll bring it back. We're not bringing it back. No. But it's... <laughs> But it is amazing the stuff you learn. Like I had no, I had no well, idea. Okay, sort of on this subject line, you recently answered a question on your show. Um, it felt very much in our wheelhouse. We were like a little offended you didn't call us for help. But it was about. <laughs> can you tell us about the Hitler mustache? Yeah. Oh my God! This woman was dating a guy who had a Hitler mustache, and she's Jewish, and she brought him to a Hanukkah party with a Hitler mustache. And his argument, his pedantic, <laughs> assholery, bullshit argument, was that he liked the mustache, and if he shaved it off, then Hitler would win. <laughs> and my response was, Hitler won the mustache. Yeah. <laughs> he lost the war. <laughs> but he won the mustache right. and the swastika. Those, those right. will never be, you know, we've all met that person and who's like, name. oh, but it's an Indian ancient symbol. It's like, no, 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 no. It's the fucking swastika. I don't care if you reverse it. Like, <laughs> you can't wear it on a T-shirt right. and be welcome anywhere. It's, and, and so I advised her to break up with him because anybody who's that stupid and argumentative and pedantic and, and, and showboaty in such a jerky way as to go to a Hanukkah party with this Jewish girlfriend with a Hitler mustache <laughs> is going to be terrible in a hundred thousand other ways that have yet to reveal themselves. And I'm really proud to say that even without bringing you guys in to intervene, and that right, would have been a really right. good idea, uh, she wound up breaking up with him and calling back and letting That's us right. know that that relationship yeah. was over. That was an amazing when you, that was an amazing question, by the way. The Hitler mustache. Like as you, when you're looking at your inbox, you're like, bad question, done that one. And then you get to that, you're like, this is gold. Yeah, we're yeah, we're gonna do <laughs> this, this one. This is real. Um, my, the producer of the Savage Lovecast, Nancy Hartunian, is Jewish, and she danced into my office when that <laughs> call like, came in. <laughs> she said, Come up to the recording studio after right this one right now. <laughs> so She's like, stuff, I found the unicorn. Yeah. How often does stuff like that happen? How often are you so surprised by questions? Because it seems to me you do this so frequently and, and so well. Do questions still come in? that make you feel like, oh my God. Oh my God. All the time, because I <laughs> smoke so much pot <laughs> that I don't remember things. I had a traumatic brain injury as a child that I think qualified me for this position because Emily Ophi retired from writing Dear Prudence. Now it's Daniel Orberg who writes Dear Prudence for Slate. Right. And she wrote it for almost 10 years. And at almost 10 years, she said, I, I've, ans I've said everything I have to say about relationships and family and weddings and sex. And I was reading what her retirement column going, I've been doing this for 28 fucking years. And I am not done. And it's because I can't remember what I answered last week. So we have a bunch of questions for you. Okay. We sent them to you in advance. You didn't read them, which is actually going to, this is going to be a wonderful experiment. Like, how good are you on the spot? <laughs> so these came in but, from our listeners. Right, from our listeners. So we, a couple months ago. And not ago, a Hitler mustache question. Not a Hitler mustache them. question in the in bunch. Sight. But a couple months ago, we put out the call. We said, we're doing a show with Dan in, in Seattle. Uh, you know his show. He's, you know, many of, we, we know that many of our listeners are, are your listeners as well. And we said, here's a chance to get him some questions. So our producer, Josh Cross, has selected seven or eight questions. And we're going to see what we can do with them. All right, Josh, go to it. All right. I think right. this first one's kind of a softball. Okay. But um, so this is from a straight woman, early 30s, from the Midwest. 
Hi, Dan. My question is this. I'm married with a six-month-old and I can't find time for sex. Is it lame to schedule it? Thanks. Bye. Schedule it. I mean, if it's schedule it and there's sex or don't schedule it because that feels lame and there's no sex, scheduling it is preferable. The lesser of two evils is a little less evil. Go for the lesser of two evils in that circumstance. Um, You know, there's been a lot in the last 30 years since I've been writing this column. It's been really fun to watch mainstream uh, sex writers, thinkers, therapists, counselors, except that people who are kinky aren't crazy and the people who are queer aren't crazy and the people who swing aren't crazy. And they have begun to recommend that monogamous vanilla couples who don't want to do anything crazy, don't want to have gay sex, don't want to swing, don't want to have sex with other partners, don't want to tie each other up, hang each other by their ankles, should borrow some of the things that kinky and swinging couples do in their lives, one of which is scheduled sex. If you're a couple and you're going to have sex with another couple, that's usually a calendar item, not an impulse purchase. And when you schedule sex, you know, if you, you can schedule it and have one of two attitudes. Oh, my God, that's one more thing we have to do this week. Ah, oh, scheduled sex. Ah, <laughs> took, took all the beauty of the impulse and it happening spontaneously out of it. Or you can schedule it and say, this is, it's something you can look forward to. I don't and think I'll ever look at That's what my, kinky people and swingers do. Like they, I'll never look at my Google Calendar the same way again. It's just there's some. Blo- I, I hear the logic. The logic is absolutely sound, and yet it's that vision. It's that like color coordinated Google. Right. So don't put it on the decal. People, people have it in their heads. It's scheduled you know, sex yeah. is lousy sex. Who hasn't had impulsive, spontaneous sex that was also lousy? Right. There's Very nothing true. about impulsive or spontaneous that guarantees hot. There is also nothing about schedule that guarantees lame. You just have to make it hot. You have to like. That's right. Be spontaneous in the moment with scheduled sex. Schedule it and then do something crazy (laughs) that didn't see coming. Josh, what else we got? So this is from a Jewish, non-binary, mixed-race, queer woman from the rural South, uh, 22 years old. Hey, everyone. Um, My partner, a bi-cis woman, and I have been dating for four months. It's been great, especially because it's hard enough to date queerly in a rural town. Problem is, she's a Southern Baptist turned evangelical. Well, she says she's not into converting folks who already have a religion, so I'm safe. She does go on mission trips that are uh, some kind of voluntourism that I don't necessarily believe in. She also believes in spreading the word and even brags about converting atheists when she was in middle school. Obviously, this left me feeling extremely uncomfortable as a Jew and a human who is opposed to trying to convert anyone. I know I should probably just break up with her, but A, I have strong feelings for her, and B, the sex is really good. It's hard enough to date down here. What do I do? This is like Hitler (laughs) (laughs) mustache-ish. I think you should move. (laughs) Which will solve all sorts of intersecting problems in your life <laughs> around scarcity, but all <laughs> scarcity can, all, can sometimes convince people they have to stay in a terrible relationship because they have no other options. And you're in a terrible part of the country for a person who's queer and interesting and diverse in all the many ways that you as an individual are queer and interesting and diverse. Get the fuck out of there. <laughs> and then you won't have to settle for the Baptist conversion, proselytizing, light person. 
I will say that, I mean, I think we've had people, I, I've certainly in our lives as Jewish, as Jew journalists, we encounter people who are dating interfaith and the person they're dating will say, yeah, I hope eventually you see the light and allow me to save your soul. And I mean, it's not unheard but of. At the same like, time, we also know people, like Jewish people who are dating non-Jewish who are like, you know, for us to get married, you're going to have to convert. Absolutely. So like, it's different. But it's not something that we are not. And part yet, of as religious well. people are always going on. Certain religious people about how sexual orientation is a choice, as they're <laughs> running in circles trying to convince everybody to choose a different religion, and yet they look at us and go, "Oh, you made that choice," as if there's something wrong with it if it were a choice, which it isn't. But right. whatever, fuck you. <laughs> it, it it drives me nuts. The people who go who say, "Oh, you know, you shouldn't have any rights." because you're gay, because that's a choice, are also proselytizing and getting people, uh, arguing with people to try to get them to choose a different religion, which is a protected class, and no one is denied any rights if it's tied to their faith. Which is just, if you're queer, it makes your head fucking explode. Right. Well, which is to say that the same assholes have reasons to end up in your inbox and ours sometimes. That's right. So, <laughs> Josh, what else? All right, so we're talking about identity. Hey everybody, I'm a queer guy and I had a girlfriend who was Jamaican-American and insisted on dating only Jewish guys. She claimed this was because Jewish men go down on their partners much more than other men, for real. Uh, was she completely wrong or was she right? We're curious about your methodology here answering this question. Everyone's sample is different. It could be that there's something there. I can't imagine the CDC has funded the research to, <laughs> to really run that to ground. But in that particular woman's experience, that was either true and, and universally true, or she lucked out from <laughs> Jew guy to Jew guy to Jew guy, and she just wanted to stick with it. I think that's it valid. Is, it is. You know who would fund that research, though, is one of the Jewish organizations that wants to get Jews to marry other Jews. <laughs> like, it's, oh, no, that's going to convince a lot of a lot of shiksas to marry Jewish guys. I guess guys that's who true, too. Their... But you'd think that, like, the Bronfmans or the Steinharts or one of the really philanthropic Jew billionaire families would want to plant their flag in... I, I don't know. I, <laughs> I mean, I do find these, like... Jewish guys do this, Jewish girls do this to be like exceptionally problematic. And the way I think it is best illustrated is like, so we did the show about, can you say Jap or Jewish American princess? And the, one of the things that came up was like, the Jappy woman or the Jewish woman in sort of more, more broadly is both like frigid and withholding sexually and also like lascivious and like oversexed. And I'm like, how are these both stereotypes? It just doesn't make any sense. And they both, they both come from like, they just have just bad roots at them, even, you know? Yeah, yeah. My, I will say that my mother was at Penn State in the mid 60s. She said that some of the Gentile farm girls from central Pennsylvania were told by their parents, go off and get yourself a Jewish husband because he'll make a lot of money and won't drink and won't beat you. You guys were all told so that we, as well? Is that, are yeah. we comfortable with stereotypes as long as they're complimentary? Well, it's, like it's gay guys and I would dress say that well and they have good like bodies that. and they know a lot about well, musicals. Are you, are you comfortable with those stereotypes? Well, I don't dress well except when my husband dresses me. And uh, I do know a lot about musicals. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, some, no, I, some stereotypes are boxes. Some stereotypes are, are insulting. Some stereotypes are kind of yeah. compliments. I just love that in the course of 40 years, we went for... Marry a Jewish guy, he won't beat you to marry a Jewish guy, they're really good giving oral sex. <laughs> That's an improvement. I'll take that. Marry a Jewish guy, he won't beat you. Marry a Jewish guy, he'll eat you. That's right. We just dropped the B. I will say. 
but I imagine Rabbi, Rabbi Billy Berkowitz would say, like, this idea, like, Jewish men do all sorts of things. Like, do, this idea, like, we don't do, I don't know. I'm talking about the, the domestic violence aspect of this. Like, yeah. I, it's so problematic to me. And it came up recently when someone was, like, asking me about why Jews are good with money is, is, is offensive. I mean, this came up, you know, the whole LeBron thing. And, it was, and I was like, well, it has really bad roots at it. And so while it's a positive stereotype, it comes from, like, a really dark sinister place. It's been weaponized, yes. the stereotype, and then used to attack Jews or it, justify violence against Jews, so it's not just... And it comes from like, a conspiracy bad history of Jews. Jews. I mean, it, it, it's rooted in, in anti-Semitism, and it was uh, weaponized by anti-Semites, so yeah. Josh? I have so many various questions, but I'm gonna... This is from a formerly Orthodox woman. I used to be Orthodox, and family purity laws meant that for two weeks out of the month, the week of my period plus seven days after... Uh, we were not having sex, not sleeping in the same bed, not hugging or kissing, or even touching casually, just zero contact. And then I would go to the mikvah, and for the other two weeks out of the month, we could basically do what we wanted. Um, but I hated this arrangement because of the lack of intimacy, and it felt very rushed to have sex in the other two weeks. Um, many folks in my community say that this creates the quote-unquote healthiest kind of marriage because it essentially forces a couple to connect intellectually and emotionally without the possibility of sex looming in the backs of their minds. Obviously, this was not the case for my husband and I, um, but I was just wondering if there is any truth to this. Is this actually a healthy way to conduct a relationship? And did you were you familiar with this idea? Yeah. Okay. I don't... I don't, individual results may vary. <laughs> well, I, I think, don't can know. You, can you, I mean, do you find... Would it be a good idea generally for all people in all relationships to have two weeks a month where they just don't touch each other, they don't have sex with each other, and they have to sort of move around each other carefully so as not to bump into each other, to force them to then talk? That's, that, that assumes that the other two weeks a month, they're only fucking and never talking. Can you imagine there are couples who should take vacations from their sex lives to connect in other ways? Time will take care of that. <laughs> Don't take a vacation. Just be married long Just enough. Be married long <laughs> enough on the vacation. Days will accrue. <laughs> Um, uh, yeah, I don't think you should hit the brakes. You know, there's something about that early stage of a relationship when you just can't keep your hands off each other, where maybe it's a good idea sometimes to set intercourse aside and then force yourselves to improvise and do other things. So you don't get, find yourselves, you know, six months or a year or 10 or 20 years later in a rut where you're just bored, where you force yourselves to like channel some of that can't keep my hands off you energy into other and more creative sexual options and different kinds of play, but don't stop touching each other during that stage. That would be crazy. We should have followed up with this questioner and said, why did you stop being Orthodox? I mean, I wonder, we don't know. We didn't follow up with her, but if, if that was part of it. If the, I mean, I've known couples who decided that was actually the, the line that they, they decided we're not really Orthodox anymore because we won't keep Nida, because, you know, we won't keep those laws. So we should follow up with her. I'm, I, you're saying this thing about, like, not bumping into each other. I'm like, my apartment in New York is so small. <laughs> that, would literally, that would be impossible. <laughs> Don't we want to talk about the problematic nature of all this like period shaming that still rattles yeah. on in certain cultures and religions and not just Judaism? There's all these cases in India of in, these oh, women dying Nepal. because they're for Nepal. Nepal, yeah, in the women huts, are in dying the pure, because the they're forced to live huts. in huts during their period and they freeze to death and die. Like, 
Or get you killed should, by animals. When, during a woman's period, you should go down on her is what you should do. Not Especially send if you're a Jewish a man heart. to keep up that stereotype. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> no, but it's interesting. I mean, there are a lot of Jewish women and Jewish organizations that have embraced that idea of like Rosh Hodesh, like they, they, these sort of circles of women who are trying to sort of get past that shame, which is really, the, the, really great. Yeah, there's, there's a... There's an orthodox feminist pushback that says, like, this is women's time when their husbands have to leave them alone. You got another one? I got the one last one. One last question, because okay. Because we'll be in trouble if we don't ask this, because okay. this is from, from our colleague, from Wayne. A, from our colleague, Wayne, at Tablet. Dan, you used to introduce all the letters to your column, hey, faggot. You stopped because you felt the word had been reclaimed. So what about us? What would be the equivalent for Jews? Is it even possible to reclaim a word like kike or yid or heeb? What should we do? Sincerely signed, Wayne Hoffman, Tablet's executive faggot. <laughs> well, when I started Savage Love in 1991, uh, Queer Nation was really active. Queer was only at that point shifting from a hate term to a word that was embraced by the queer community and sort of rallied around by the queer community. And there was this uh, effort to use faggot, dyke, queer, sissy, tranny, um, and destigmatize them and embrace them and, and use them ourselves. And that's where, when I started Savage Love, every uh, letter began with, hey, faggot. Um, I wanted to call the column, hey, faggot, uh, because it sounded like Dear Abby, the same sort of big, flat <laughs> Chicago, hey, hey, Dear Abby, hey, faggot. Um, <laughs> And I did it for like seven or eight years. And at the seven or eight year mark, it was a, the reference was lost. You know, in 1990, 91, when the column started, it was clear that I was like a product of Queer Nation. And this was like a reference to Queer Nation, particularly in the papers I was running in. And then it was like, people couldn't remember. And it, it sort of got away from it. I still use faggot in the letters and sometimes in my responses. And you can see in the letters and responses that it can be used affectionately or it can be used as an insult. And it was intent that made it a hate word, not necessarily those letters in a row. Um, what, isn't there a magazine called Heeb? Wasn't there, there a was. magazine in the yeah. 90s yeah. called yeah. Heeb? Yeah. So hasn't there been an effort? Not even an effort. There's certain terms in, that are anti-Semitic so, have been claimed and used ironically and in an in-group way by Jews in the same way queer people have used all of these terms ironically, affectionately, in an in-group way. What was dangerous about Savage Love and still kind of is, is me telling the readers who were writing to me that they could call me a faggot was me telling straight people they could use that word when they addressed me as well. And that was what was kind of like bomb throwy about Savage Love back in the day. Yeah. I think I think the the Jewish analogy is interesting because certainly I mean I was last night at our show in LA um, someone in the audience was a, a former guest Sarah Ben Or who's a, a major Jewish sociolinguist and sh she's writing a book on Jewish naming and and how people talk to each other and what they call each other and we were chatting and we were pointing out that like most of the Jew slurs are actually just antique at this point like if someone called me a sheeny or a heeb right. like who would the, oh, the what's big, a it's a Jaime? Is that Jaime well, yeah. Town? I want to bring like, back shirtlifter, which used to be an insult for us. For gay people? Yeah. What, because like you're that. always showing you up your nipples? some guy over and you lift his shirt and fuck him in the ass. Oh my God. I Shirt assumed it was like, just show me your abs. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it is on Instagram now. Yes. We should bring it back for Instagram. Shirtlifter. But I don't think heeb, I've, I've never known heeb to be like an offensive word because I don't know anyone who would like be like, oh, you heeb. Like right. that just doesn't occur to me. And like the same way the K word, it's just never something I've heard. It seems to me very dated. We should, I would, we should I'm update those. But like yid, I kind word? of yeah. like yid. Kike. K 
Kite? Like kite. Oh, the K I don't word? even like it. The, the K Everybody word. Everybody gets their letter of the alphabet the hyphen K word word The K word, yeah. It I just mean, seems like, and it seems so outdated to me. And today's so budding little white, white supremacists, the 12 red white supremacists don't know these words. They just call us like dumb Jew, you know, killer Jew, Nazi Jew. Like the Jews will not replace us. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, but it's really offensive that they're not even trying at this point. I mean, Shirtlifter <laughs> has like poetry to it. You could, you could do better than that. We and our listeners have asked you a series of questions, but as our Gentile of the week, you are now able to ask us a question. I have two. Can I cheat? That's very Jewish. Absolutely. <laughs> the, the first one, I think, may be the easier one. Um, what's up with Jews and Christmas? Terry and I do Christmas up pretty big every year. Catholic, big families. Uh, I'm Catholic from a huge family, and so there was just the three of us. We started doing a huge Christmas Eve dinner 15 years ago and a huge Christmas Day party, and one year we had to cancel it after years and years and years of doing it because we had an emergency, uh, and the people who were most devastated that they weren't at our house for Christmas Eve uh -huh. dinner yeah. and our house all day for Christmas Day and our house is camp at Christmas, like we do it up, were all of our Jewish friends who were like, ah, uh. ah. like we deprived them of their Christmas. <laughs> And they were really bent. What's up with that? So well, that's I mean, the contract, man, between us. That's <laughs> America. We make the money, and you have, and you have Christmas. I mean, it, we no, write it, the Christmas songs and produce the Christmas that's true. movies. That's right. You have a summer. so we have to feed you on you Christmas in exchange the for the Barbara Streisand Christmas album that's we owe right. you. And the, all the Irving, the Irving Berlin Irving song. Berlin. Book. I mean, the, the bottom line is Christmas is a. We don't have any holiday as great. This is a tough thing to say in this room because I know, look, as a Jewish dad, I know the, all the ways we're supposed to make our holidays great. And I will say that my children, they love building the sukkah on Sukkot. They love the fact there's eight nights of Hanukkah and they know how to tell their friends, we get eight nights. And, you know, they, they know... They know all that we've done all the Jewish pride things to make them feel okay about being a minority people in a, you know, where we live, there are not a lot of Jews. Like I don't live on the Upper West Side. I, like there's, they're the only Jewish children in their classes often. That said, Christmas is just awesome. I mean, you know, we don't have anything <laughs> and, and we know it and we see it and it's so just awesome. You want a awesome. taste of it. Yeah. And we deprived our Jewish yeah, friends that like, year of the taste that they're We don't want to sell out and bring it into our houses. Although there are many Jews who do Christmas and I'm not saying they're all sell. I'm saying, but for those who don't bring it into our houses, that's a statement, but we, we can't not let our kids have it. Okay, here's my other question. That's I think more difficult because I never know what to say. And I get this all the time. I write, people write to me, they call me. Jewish couples, they're having a son. They don't want to get it circumcised. What do I, as a Catholic, what do I, they want to know what I think they should tell their Jewish relatives to get them off the circumcision hook. So what do you say back? I never respond to these questions because it's not my problem. <laughs> You're like, this is Wait, above so my pay grade. Yeah. They write, like Jews who are anti-circumcision. the Catholic say. fag saying, what do I tell my mom? We don't want to get our son circumcised. What do we tell our parents? Well, I will say that... That is a fabulous our, question. This is a great time to announce that we will be doing a special episode about circumcision and all the debates um, and all the sort of cultural implications um, coming up this year. So, um, yeah. with With... Are you punting? No, 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 no I'm no. starting this, but I'm, I'm like plugging something. No. I and think there will be, there will help be. Help me out. What do I tell there will be audio all these young Jewish couples who don't want to circumcise I their sons that, that, that they should tell their parents? Are asking you that because that means that they have no one to talk to. Not that you're not like that. That they're going to you. No, seriously. But like there's on, no Stephanie. one in their Jewish community that they can ask about this, I or think... they feel shame, and they go to someone who and they write someone anonymously. 
And I, they perceive me as the permission slip hander outer because it's and often like, what I do in my column. Okay. Like I t- tell people they can do what they you want. You should do a thing like you know cameos that app that like you pay celebrities and they'll make you a video. People should pay you to like send a, vi- a message to their parents, being like the Catholic queer says, "Don't cir- it's okay <laughs> if I don't <laughs> circumcise my son. It's gonna be fine." But I'm really interested. So look, for me, it was never a thing that I thought about for one second. It was like completely obvious. Totally non-problematic, like just a matter of great joy and pride. That your son would be... Oh, a thousand percent. How right. did you feel? So we should say, for what it's worth, like Liel has a son who... How old is, is your son? Five. He's five. And I have a son who's five months. And both of them were circumcised in like public rituals. Like not the doctor did it, you know, like the way that most of... That many men in this room were circumcised were like, you're still in the hospital, but like brisses. Moils. With, with moils. With bagels afterwards. Like it's a party. you like... <laughs> And, and mine was on the second day of Rosh Hashanah in the synagogue, so everyone's there. So it's 200 people show up. It was a up. packed house. It was a packed house. They came. And um, I'm going to talk about this more on the show. I've had enormous ambivalence about it, enormous ambivalence. And I actually rallied for the day of and was like, this is kind of awesome and beautiful. And then the day after, when there was a little bit of blood and stuff, I freaked and was like, I've done the worst thing I've ever done. As it turned out, the blood was from this belly button, because as you know, belly buttons often bleed. And I, it took me a while to figure that out. I was like, oh, his penis is fine. His belly button's bleeding. <laughs> but um, I, I, I'm babbling inarticulately because this is something I am still working through. It's very primal. It was very fraught for me. I had four daughters before I decided. Every time I was like, don't have to have a bris. Don't have to have a bris. Don't have to have a bris. I think, to answer your question, what you tell them is... Tell them that, it, that their child is still Jewish. Tell, tell Bubby that the kid is still Jewish, which is a thousand percent true. Mm-hmm. So halakhically, even at, you know, no matter who you're asking, the most Orthodox, you're not not Jewish if you're not circumcised. It is a mitzvah you're supposed to do, according to those authorities, but you're not de-Jewed. And for a lot of especially relatively secular American Bubbies and Zadies, that will set them, they have some sense. It's like the, it's like the lie that, that people with tattoos can't be buried in Jewish cemeteries, not true. But to a certain kind of secular American myth-making, that's big. So don't get a tattoo. I'm gonna call you the next time I get a call with <laughs> this do you question feel, to get you on the show to give feel, that answer. How, Just forward it to Mark. What would you guys say he should say? I think that's about right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you would have to then, it would be really funny if you wrote back being like, you are halachically still Jewish. Love, Dan Savage. Don't worry, Bobby. It is a mitzvah. mitzvah. But, Dan, what are you working on now? Last question. What's your current project? What should people look for for from you? Uh, I'm still writing Savage Love every week. I host the Savage Love cast every week and uh, bring in lots of fun uh, guests and authors and writers and sex researchers. Um, And I'm working on three different projects for television and one film adaptation of a, a memoir. Right now, I have a lot on my plate. Amazing. I'm a little overtaxed, um, but I'm not working on a book because uh, I'm doing all these other things, and I haven't finished reading Twitter yet. As soon as I'm done reading Twitter, <laughs> well, Ben Shapiro. We have Ben Shapiro backstage. Yeah. <laughs> it's a debate. I am done with Ben Shapiro. You're done with the, you, you won't come back when Ben Shapiro's our Jew of the week. Is Are you going to have him on? We 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 haven't. You should. We'll have anyone on. Is someone's got to talk sense to someone's that? Got to talk sense. Tiny Richard. person. <laughs> Dan Savage, thank you for being our Gentile of the Week. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me back. Absolutely. We're almost done, but before we do that, we have to do Mazel Tov. So you guys have a chance to do some Mazel Tovs. Think of what your Mazel Josh will be around with the microphone. But Liel, didn't you have a... Uh... 
I, I, I absolutely do. Um, I can't see very well, but uh, to to our dear friends, Kirby and Neil Larson, who are here somewhere, thank you for coming. And yep. we love you. And you should check out all of Kirby's books because she's one of the country's greatest young adult writers. Amazing. Thank you. I have a birthday shout out to Stacey Koenig. Hi. Over there, row three. Um, her birthday's next week, and she's here, and I'm so happy to, to meet her. Mazel tov on living another year, having a birthday. Um, we have time for 10 or 12 mazel tovs from the crowd, and, and we do our best to get, the, get them on the we show. We have a very um, excited mazel tov so at the do- back. <laughs> Hi, I'm Betsy. Um, Mike and Heather are all the way in the back. They recently got married. And is it public knowledge? Tell the next part. They're going to have a baby in it is June. <laughs> mazel tov. My name is Cheryl, and I wanted to give a mazel tov to a lot of my recent co-workers who successfully unionized and are currently negotiating against Mars and Blue Pearl to try and get a fair contact, contract for veterinary medicine. Yeah. Mazel tov. My name is Andrea, and I wanted to give a quick mazel tov to my cousins, Adam and Brooke, on the birth of their baby, who is born into the coldest weather ever in Minneapolis. Um, congratulations and mazel tov on the birth of your daughter, Zoe Stein. I like Ma- that that baby was also sending screenshots of the weather. Um, my name is Tori. Thank you for the shout out at the beginning of the show, by the way. That was very unexpected. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> I wanted to give a mazel tov to my best friend. She is not here tonight because she is at home recovering from a C-section. She gave birth to a, an 11 plus pound baby. Wow. Um, Margaret Evangeline is beautiful and delightful and I'm going to be meeting her next month when I go to visit and I'm very excited. Mazel so mazel tov to them. Hi, I'm Elizabeth, and I wanted to give a big mazel tov to my beautiful niece, Sapir Soto, who will be playing in the IDF. She got in, and she'll be playing the clarinet. What is the IVF? IDF. IDF. Oh. She got into the Israeli Israeli Army. Forces Orchestra. The orchestra. She's playing clarinet in the IDF orchestra. Someone needs to, you know, boost up morale. Liel, did you get into the orchestra? I did not. You did? I tried. (laughs) tried. It didn't work well. That's, That's amazing. A good Go ahead. I'm Abigail, and I'm going to cavell a little bit. I left my wife and my beautiful son Ezra at home in Portland this weekend. We are just recovering from my son's, my older son's bar mitzvah, and my beautiful 11-year-old son is starting his bar mitzvah process tomorrow morning with a community meeting. So mazel tov to my kid. Mazel tov. I have to say, when you said you left your wife, I heard something else. Yeah, right. But they're in Portland. I love that. Thank you for coming. And and this is an opportunity for me to correct an impression created by a failed attempt at a joke earlier and give just a a huge mazel tov to all the Jewish community in Portland, a city I love dearly. (laughs) My name is Carol, and I'm giving out a huge mazel tov to my great aunt Hilda, who is celebrating her 95th birthday today in uh, New York. On Long Island. Yes. Mazel tov, yes, Hilda. Queen. We All need right. more Hildas, you know? We do yeah. need more Hildas. We need to bring it back. Absolutely. Yeah. Anyone here having a baby soon? Hilda, Hilda. is the name you're looking for. Hilda. We want you to bring back Murray for boys and Hildy for girls. That's right. Run with it. Go ahead. 
My name is Max, and I'd like to give a big mazel tov to my grandparents, Nana and Papa, who celebrated their 68th anniversary this week. Aww. Can I just ask you, Max, what are Nana and Papa's first names? Uh, Marilyn and Ed. Okay. No Murrays, but I do, his brother is a Murray. Absolutely. Of course he is. <laughs> of course he is. And, he, and his, his other brother was Sydney. Yeah, go ahead. My name is Renata, and as you can hear from my accent, I'm not from here. I'm from Kent. <laughs> yeah, it's the Israeli accent. And I want to say Mazal uh, Tov, this is how you say it in Hebrew, <laughs> to my husband that I'm his fourth wife. <laughs> I hope I will be his last one. <laughs> and I love you very much, baby. <laughs> Tough thought, act to follow. Yeah, I know. I thought mine was going to be original. Uh, my name is Nathan, and I want to give a shout out to my former roommate, Rafi Ginsberg, who's completing his third year of living in a Moshe house, and this is his last month. Mazel tov. Mazel tov, indeed. All right, I'm Pamela Lavitt, and I'm going to give a huge unexpected mazel tov to my daughters, teenagers who are going to be so embarrassed that I said this. But they, as 10th graders, are the co presidents of Jew Club. There we go. In Seattle. In Seattle. Margot Chaya, Daniel Bela, Mazel Tov. Can I just say... Is the first rule of Jew Club is that you don't talk about Jew Club? <laughs> or... Well, clearly it's out of the bag now, Leo. <laughs> that, so it's a high school club, and it's and just I called Jew Club. And I wanted to mention that. Besides Jew Club. The, yeah, generally Seattle is hidden yidden, but at Jew Club, it's Jew Club. Amazing. I think that's hidden yidden, like that's people hidden are yidden. afraid it's... to be out about their... Seattle, we are quiet. You're yes. quiet, but Jew Not Club, tonight. like, that is profound. Just Jew Club. Like, Hillel's fine, but nobody, like, when the kind of kids who need Hillel often don't know what Hillel means. Whereas Jew Club, it's like, you know, you know what you're getting into, right? If and, you everyone can, he, and everyone here is in Jew Club tonight. Thank if you. If you can walk Yay. into Jew Club. Um... Seattle, you are amazing. Thank you so much for turning out. The three of us will hang afterwards and schmooze and, uh, and, and soak up more of the love and return it. Uh, we are so grateful that you came out. This is really extraordinary. We don't want to go back to negative 10 degree temperatures back home. Uh, we want to stay here and um, drink coffee and love you. And I said I'd be back tomorrow for the Super Bowl with Rebecca, and we all have lives to get back to. But otherwise, we, we really hope to be back. And thank you so much. I especially want to thank, I want to thank, obviously, the Strom JCC, the Arts and Ideas stage here, which brought us. Everyone can learn more at sjcc.org. And also, you should check, check out seattlejewishfilmfestival.org, which, as you heard, has a lot of terrific things coming. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. You can ask for our newsletter by writing to unorthodox at tabletmag.com and put newsletter in the subject line. We often come to you live, like tonight, at the Strom JCC, also known as The J. To book us or to advertise with us, email producer Josh Cross at jcross, that's cross with a K, at tabletmag.com. Of course, you should wear and carry unorthodox as well. Go to bit.ly slash unortho shirt and find the latest in unorthodox shirts, mugs, and onesies. The perfect gift for your friend who has just given birth to a young Jew or Gentile. An unorthodox onesie. They will be the toast of the playgroup. Follow us on Instagram at Unorthodox Podcast, on Twitter at Unorthodox underscore pod. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross, Shira Talushkin, and Noah Levinson. Our editor is Sophia Steinert Evoy. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our social media intern is Elazar Abrams. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Billy Berkovitz of Seattle. 
We usually come to you from Argo Studios in the Flatiron District, but today, tonight, the Strom Jewish Community Center in sunny Mercer Island, Washington. Shalom, friends. 